Today's dealing with uh, how do I organize my sermon. And last week we talked about application, the week before that illustration. And we got this lesson and then one more lesson which will cover more of the mechanics of uh, teaching and preaching. And, and, uh, and then and I'm gonna, the ninth lesson is just me. I'm going to use, I'm going to show an example of all of the things I've instructed you on. I'm just going to go through an example in here, give you uh, preparation notes and, uh, that I put together in preparation of sermons, and then, um, and then uh, uh, the actual manuscript that uh, I prepare, and then uh, a teaching outline, so, and we'll just go through that together and answer any questions you have, and then this seminar will be over, and you'll be back to your normal uh, Bible study. I appreciate y'all being faithful to this time and I hope it's been profitable. Let's, uh, let's get to our outline here. So, um, if, we're, if we're talking about the basic mechanics of organizing a structure, it's not structuring a sermon, it's not that much different than what you would get in some of your uh, uh, classes in, 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 in speech or classical speeches and those kind of things, especially in our uh, format at churches like ours. You're going to have an introduction. Well... I have to buy, buy new expos, huh? Um, the introduction, the body, and the conclusion. I just want to encourage you uh, by just um, saying that, first of all, you shouldn't be, nobody should be intimidated by this. This is basically, anytime you have a, uh, an extended conversation, you do this. If you have a, if you have a, uh, if you have a phone call that you make, um, for a specific purpose. Now, if you're just calling to chat or talk to a friend, that might not be the case. But you're going you're gonna to do these basic mechanics in every conversation, intentional conversation you have. You have a purpose that you're trying to accomplish. You pick up the telephone. You're going to introduce that. You're going to try to not get distracted, right? Make what, what you want to make out of the conversation to drive home the point and then make sure you finish it well. I mean, you do it on the phone, I hope. Uh, some, some don't, that's why they stay on the phone for hours and hours and hours and then get off and wonder what they talked about. But you're going to introduce your subject, you're going to make your main points, you're going to conclude. If we're talking about a 40-minute uh, sermon, for, if the goal is a 40-minute sermon, we can do it several ways. But, but one, we would say the introduction needs to be five to seven minutes, the conclusion about seven minutes, and so if we take the remaining time, the, the body of the sermon is going to be anywhere from, uh, from 26, about 26 minutes, roughly. And um, so the introduction and the conclusion are the, hopefully, proportionately smaller than your main body of your, of your, uh, of your sermon. All right, or your lesson, or, or whatever. There's there's a reason for this, and that is that your introduction has has a very specific um, purpose, and it is to um, set a mood for instruction for the main body. It basically sets the table for what you're going to talk about in your sermon, and and so therefore it should 
um, be in the same mood as the sermon. If you, if you think about uh, sermons, if, you, if you're dealing with a, a topic like in your sermon is going to deal with death, um, an introduction filled with humor, probably not a real good idea, is it? You're dealing with a very sensitive, difficult topic. In a sermon where you're dealing with um, the call to repentance, you're going to want to set the mood from the very outset of your sermon that directs the people's attention to this being a moment of decision, a time to, to investigate the, the depths of my sin in my own heart and, and deal with the Lord. You're going to want to set the table. So if you start out with a lot of... This, this is where I think a lot of times uh, we fail in, in sermons that I listen to, a lot of times fail in the fact that they're uh, more secular in the sense that their, their whole purpose for having an introduction is to uh, get a laugh out of the audience. And so that the, whole, the whole introduction is given to a funny story or a joke or um, something that causes the people to have a real lighthearted mood entering the sermon. And then all of a sudden they switch in and start talking about something of great importance. And they wonder why it takes the audience a while to shift gears with them. Or the, it's the introduction is what um, a professor of mine used to call a throwaway. They just kind of, the guy gets up, he starts to talk, and he rambles about something that happened to him during the week, and then he reads the text and starts preaching. And so he loses the effectiveness of his introduction. So you want to set the mood. You want an appropriate length. This one I struggle with. Um, a lot of times I break my own standard. Five to seven minutes. And so it's easy to do, especially if you're trying to set, and, and this is why uh, I'm glad we have the English teacher here. It's like English 101. You learn that every rule in English, almost every rule has a what? An exception. <laughs> yeah, because there, there are reasons we might want to go beyond the five to seven mark. For instance, if we're dealing with a very, uh, very um, uh, unfamiliar text, we're dealing with a very unfamiliar uh, topic, something that's not dealt with a lot. We've got to kind of set the context for what we're going to talk about. So we might have to go through a lot of introduction to get prepared for what we're going to say in our main points. Um, but typically, we want to hold the length to, you know, about roughly uh, five to seven minutes in, in a typical 40-minute sermon. And so if we go to... Uh, if we go to the, um, the introduction here, we're, we're also thinking the whole time we're preparing our introduction, am I preparing, am I driving the people to my main point? Which is why I said at the beginning, a long time ago, back second seminar, I think, third seminar in this series, when do I prepare us my introduction? First? No. Last. My introduction goes on the paper last. My introduction is, is thought through at the very end. Why? Remember I said, if you write down your introduction, and you have this great lead-in, and great you know, story, and then you go study all week, and you, and you get the main points, and the introduction has nothing to do with the main points. One, you wasted a lot of time, or two, you're going to be using that introduction regardless because it was just so good. And, and then you're distracting people, you're not setting up. So, 
you spend the majority of your week here and then go, you know, then go back and, and, and attach. It's almost like attaching something at the end. Because the point is, the introduction serves the main points, the main body <laughs> of the sermon. <laughs> so if we look at the main body of the sermon, the, the, the sermon's body should be unified around a driving theme. It's organized around something that uh, basic hermeneutic uh, and homiletic, I mean, basic homiletics calls an ETS and an ESS, all right? Now, I give you a full semester of, uh, of uh, seminary right here, all right? You go to your text of Scripture, you're looking for the essence of the text in a sentence. Go to any text of Scripture, you're looking at a paragraph, you're looking at a chapter, or whatever. You're looking for the essence of the text. And then when you find it, when you've studied it long enough and you've hammered it out, you want to put it in one sentence. So that if somebody came up to you on, you're going to preach on Sunday, somebody came up to you on Saturday afternoon and said, what are you preaching tomorrow? I'm preaching Luke 6, 46 through 49. Really, what's it about? It shouldn't take a full page of explanation for you to tell them what you're going to be preaching about uh, the, or what that text of Scripture is about. You also want to develop the body of the sermon around something known as the essence of the sermon in a sentence. Now, these are going to be Mirror statements. The text, essence of the text, in a sentence. Jesus tells us that if our life is not founded on Him, it will fail. That's the essence of the text. Alright? What's the essence of the sermon? We must found our lives on Jesus Christ or they will fail. If I'm going to teach, which I am, so you got to peek into the, into the sermon for this morning. If I'm going to preach Luke 6, 46 through 49, I've got to know it that concisely. If not, then the main body of the text of the sermon is going to, is going to chase a lot of rabbits, and it's going to go down lots of alternate trails, and people are going to leave with a real confusion rather than a real fog rather than a clear, pointed understanding. The main body of the sermon is outlined then <coughs> around the content of the text. So, in, uh, in expositional preaching, we're hopeful that at the end of the sermon, the people understand the text. That's the, that's the reason we're teaching. So, we want to outline our sermon then around the outline of the text. Um, I don't, I don't uh, always agree... Um, with this, uh, with this man, but his statement on uh, what we can do or what we should be able to do while we preach is uh, Walter Kaiser always said that a person should be able to take their finger and put it in the text and follow the sermon in the text. Now that doesn't mean that the only thing you say is what's in the text. It just means that when you're preaching this text. 
Uh, hopefully this morning, you will be able to follow me in the text to the end of verse 46, where we'll make a very expanded point about 46. And then be able to follow down through the text in verse 47 as we break apart the three things contained in a life that reflects it's founded on Jesus Christ. And then to be able to follow to the end of the contrasting statement, which is if your life's not on this foundation, and the reason it will collapse is because it's not on this foundation, and that's seen by the lack of those previously stated three things from earlier in the sermon. And so when we finish the text, then you should have seen the outline from the text. Often outlines go away if people create great, they craft great outlines that don't stick to the text, and so people remember the outline and forget the text. This is my biggest complaint about um, alliteration. Alliteration is a memory device. I don't, I don't question that. But the Bible is not alliterated. And when we alliterate, we often force the text into our outline. Rather than our outline flowing out of and from the body of the text itself. And so, Adrian Rogers. If you listen to, if you listen to Adrian Rogers, you hear one of the greatest alliterative teachers to ever uh, grace us. In my, in my lifetime, anyway. I've never read anything even in history like him. I think the guy got up in the morning alliterating. Um, but one thing I can say is people who listen to him long enough, <clears throat> they know his sermon outlines. They don't necessarily even know what he was preaching about. So his memory device worked, right? They remembered what he said. They didn't remember the Bible. Now, that's not always true. And it's not fair to overgeneralize. But that's the danger of alliteration. It's also the danger <clears throat> of having topical preaching. Again, the, the sermon outline will come, though it may be true, from various texts all over the Scripture. And the people go home with, at best, an understanding of your idea on those Scriptures and, um, and that particular topic. So if we're talking about... Um, Adultery, and then we go and we have four, out, four points in the outline. Typically, they're going to come from four different places in the Bible. And they're not going to explain those texts necessarily. Those texts are used as proof texts to prove my point, one, two, three, and four. All right? Now, just so you know, I don't hate all topical preachers. My granddad was a topical preacher. I've got a Bible in my office that's his, and it was a loose-leaf Bible. It was an, it's like a little notebook. And in, this, in, in passages, uh, there are stuck in the binding, and this is pretty neat, pretty, a binding are his sermon manuscripts. And so they, I have all these sermons from like 1961 through 65, I think, in one Bible. And they're all stuck in the place of the first text he read. But the sermon is not about that text. The text usually used the word he was preaching on. And then he would launch out on what he wanted to preach about, about that topic. And then, and then it was free-for-all from there. right? And I love him. And I love to hear him preach. Um, <clears throat> but 
Uh, that's the danger of topical preaching. That's the danger of alliteration. Is the text is not driving the sermon anymore because our outline is now driving the sermon. So if the outline comes from the organic nature of the text, if we're just restating what the text says, in other words, in our main points, then we still can mess up, but at least we're tracking on the right way. here. So our sermon is organized around the essence of the text or the essence of the sermon. It's one sentence uh, form, it's kernel form. It's outlined from the text itself. The main body should then have clear flow so that the audience is able to follow those main points and arrive at your destination, where, you, where the Scripture wants them, where you want them by the end of the sermon. Now, um, if, if, if we um, do it correctly, what should happen, um, Al Mohler uh, said this one time in a preaching class, what should happen is, is the people should see preaching somewhat like a, um, like a play. All right? And so, if uh, we're constructing our main body, we want um, scene one. All right? And then from that, you have an interlude, which leads us to scene two. And another interlude, and then the final act in this sermon, because it's just a three-part sermon, which includes, this final act includes our last point, our main point, and then from it, and then at the very end, the conclusion. All right, in other words, what Moeller says is that, um, in his book on preaching, is that preaching is, in this way, a drama that should bring and catch and push the people to the conclusion. The main uh, focus, kind of drawing everyone to a point of the, of the day is this conclusion. So, <clears throat> as we build our sermon, we're stating these, uh, these points clearly, but we're seeing them, these interludes are connecting sentences, are connecting thoughts. You want to have a connecting thought between each of these, so that, it's just like, like I said, just as you're going to a play, when scene one ends, they're going to do what? They're going to give you a sentence or a last paragraph of that scene that prepares you as they change out all the platform and they get ready for scene two to open up for scene two. So scene one ended where scene two is going to pick up and people follow that even if you take a, a break while they change out the props and all that of five, ten minutes. When it picks back up, the, the people are right there on track. They know because the last of scene one prepared them for scene two. And the same thing should happen in the sermon. When scene one ends, when point one ends, whatever that is, you should be connecting them immediately. Don't leave it to chance. Tell them, this is drive them to the next point, which opens up and then explains along and connects back to scene one. And so people are clearly following this analytically uh, like, a, like a drama. And then in the conclusion we have the main, the main draw, the main drama, the main point of decision uh, at the end. The subpoints of the sermon then <clears throat> are like a road map. You, you don't necessarily um, need people to understand the, the, or see the under parts here, the subpoints. They can become distracting if you make them too big. They're just like a road map. You know, 
it's like if we left here and we're headed to California and we had a map, our focus wouldn't be on the map. Our focus would be on the scenery around us, the conversation in the car, the final destination. But the road map keeps us on track. So the subpoints, when you're building your, your outline, your subpoints are just that. They shouldn't necessarily be remembered by anybody in the audience for themselves. Rather, they should be seen just as other parts that are pushing us to this main idea. The points and the subpoints then should be appropriately illustrated. And in the end, at the end of the sermon, <coughs> you want everyone to have that ESS, that main thought as they leave. Okay, so um, as we're preparing this main body, this main text, it's helpful, it's helpful as you do this to think in terms of a, um, a question. As you're getting ready for the sermon, you want to think, what question am I answering for the people? What, what am I, what, why should they pay attention and listen to this sermon? What's the question? Like this morning. The question is in my title. Will your house stand or fall? Will your life survive the disaster that's just around the corner? Everybody, I'm betting everybody in attendance this morning wants to know if their life will survive the disaster that's waiting for them just around the next bend of the road, right? There's nobody in here who'd say, I don't care if I survive that or not. It just doesn't matter to me. Now, we may have some fools among us who think, I'm never going to face disaster, and I'll have to deal with that. But nobody in attendance this morning will say, whether I survive that next coming problem in my life or not, it just, it, it's not really that important. What time do the brave start today? So your sermon needs to have that kind of punch. Like, what, what are you wanting the people to really answer about this text? And what do they need to understand when they go home? And what are you trying to send them home with? And why should they pay attention for the next 40 minutes? Or 45? Or 50? Not an hour anymore. Not an hour anymore. If you've been here long enough, you can appreciate them. You should be able to appreciate that my sermons are becoming smaller and smaller. I've looked over the last, you just so you know, I keep track of the last two months. I've looked over them. They're somewhere around 41 to 42 to every now and then 49. There was one, Steve, that was 52. It blew the average. All right, the conclusion of the sermon. <clears throat> so we've got our points about introduction, about main body of the sermon. Now, what about the conclusion? Um, George Smith, just because Barry's in here, so I can talk about his dad. Barry will confirm that this is one of his biggest pet peeves. And Barry, see, if, if I let him think for a minute, he'll know where I'm going. His biggest gripe about the preacher is, he doesn't know when to land the plane. <laughs> right? <laughs> Bring it down. Yeah, you're right. yeah it's, it was good. You were flying. You were cruising. And you should, you should have seen that landing trip and just come right on in, according to George. As if you missed it. 
It will run out of grass, and that, that thing will crash and burn. <laughs> you, can't, you can't save it, right? And uh, <clears throat> so the conclusion is important. I've had a lot of sermons that I've prepared that have crashed and burned I've, at the end. I've had a lot that because I didn't pay attention to how I was going to close it, I was really on fire preaching it, and then I thought in my own mind, uh-oh, I gotta, somehow I've got to end this. I mean, where am I go- what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, <clears throat> so I've, I've had that striking fear. So I just encourage you as you prepare to teach or preach, always think about how it is you're going to get that thing on the ground uh, so you don't have to parachute out. And uh, conclude the sermon. Uh, <clears throat> the conclusion of the sermon is the servant of the main body. In other words, the introduction is the same thing. The introduction the conclusion to the day are really serving your main point. It should be. So, therefore, you don't want to introduce new material. There's one way for sure to never land the plane. You've preached well. You've got your three points. Everything is perfect. You're packaging that thing. Man, people are right on the edge of their seat. And they, they know you're to the end because you've told them. And now you introduce something that was totally new to them. A new concept, a new thought, another main point. And all of a sudden, everybody in there did several things. Some of them got mad because they thought you were a liar, because of truth and advertising. You said we were done, now you started something new. Some of them are really hungry, and they just thought, "Uh uh-oh, it's 12.45, and he just made another point, and we're going to have to finish that. That's 12 o'clock at least. I'm hungry, you know. And some of them, the, the nice ones of the bunch, are going to try to follow you. And then they got to try to figure out how to get these two sermons together. You know, because you had this sermon, it's real nice, and then you introduce something new, and it's, it's headed them somewhere else. And now they've got two sermons instead of one. And that's a train wreck. That, that leaves everybody with this feeling of, oh, no, you know, as they leave. So the conclusion doesn't introduce anything new. The only thing you want to try to do is to call the people to an effective uh, audience response. Every something, I get, I get this a lot. Well, um, you know, I had, had someone who visited our church. Um, they only came once. And uh, I know them really well. They were just passing through town. They stopped in. They left. They, several weeks later, they sent me an email. And they said, I really love the day, the the." the they went through several things they liked, and the sermon was great. I knew it was building up. When you get those emails, you know the but's coming, you know? And it did happen, you know, but, and this is what they said, but I just was left wondering, why didn't you have an invitation? And then I got a long email about the value of having invitations, you know. Now, invitations, in this person's view, are please turn in your hymnal to hymn number 409 and sing with me just as I am. And uh, we'll sing all five verses. And then stand and plead with the congregation to come down the aisle. That's an invitation. Yeah, you have to keep repeating because nobody came. And now the preacher's embarrassed. And God failed and his word returned void. And so what are we going to do? So you have this... uh, you know, this concept of, of to have a point of decision, you have to have an invitation. Okay? Um, invitations, we're not going to 
Right, see, this is, this is good in that because what my heart wants to do is tell you, go through now a 15-minute lecture on why invitations shouldn't happen. I don't want to try to keep it on track. Invitations are a style of asking for decision. We'll be nice. But uh, they're not the only way we ask for decisions. Because, see, in the sermon, and I went back and looked up my sermon that this person was critiquing for lack of invitation, and it's very clear. I actually went back and listened to the audio. It's very clear, both the audio and my outline, that there was a question being asked at the end of the sermon and a response being required of the people. I just didn't have a hymn with some kind of human device to pull people to that. It was in the conclusion, and see, the conclusion is an invitation. If you go read Jesus' teachings, the conclusions of his teachings are, all, are almost always invitations to respond. They're almost always invitations to respond in some form or fashion. The apostles, when they preach in the book of Acts, they call the people to respond. They don't call people ever that we can see to some kind of man-made invention like walking an aisle, raising a hand, standing, uh, signing a card, or anything like that. But they invite people to a decision. The decision is a spiritual decision made between the person and God. Therefore, anything we insert here um, interferes with the decision that the person is trying to make between God and themselves. And now I've just done what I said I wasn't going to do, which is tell you why invitations are not good. Anyway, you can go read Martin Lloyd-Jones. His is much better than mine. Um, conclusions should effectively call the audience to respond. But now when I say that, now I just go ahead on this morning's sermon since we've already used it twice. <clears throat> At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in the Luke account is the story of building your house on the rock. It is clear that Jesus is invoking the audience to respond. He never asks them a question. He never, he never calls them to do anything necessarily. But the last part of Luke's recording from 43 all the way, or actually 39 all the way down through the end of the chapter, is Jesus' style of invitation. He invokes response. He calls the people to examine their life, to think of who they are in comparison. And He, he does that throughout His ministry. Um, my point is that conclusions should serve the main body by calling people to respond. If all, we, if all we get out of the sermon is more knowledge about the Bible, the sermon has failed. If, if the whole point of preaching today is that you know more about Luke 6, 46-49, if that's my point, I will fail. Biblical preaching is not commentating. Apostolic, biblical, Christ-centered preaching is not writing commentaries. Writing commentaries has its place. Commentaries are helpful. But they are not sermons. We often make mistakes um, by this, and we, um, it's easy to do. Um, I'll give you an example. I mentioned him just a minute ago. DeMar, I, I'm mentioning dead people these days, so I don't offend anybody. <clears throat> Hopefully. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was probably the most effective preacher 
in, in England, maybe in the world, in the 20th century. All right? He was pastor at Westminster Chapel in England, in London. People make a mistake. How many of you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? The good doctor. All right? How many of you have looked at his, uh, his um, Romans, uh, his work on Romans? You've looked at it. His comment, you know, some people call it a commentary. It's really just his outlines and his explanation of the text, okay? Did you know that those were not sermons? Those are not representative of the way D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached Sunday mornings in the chapel. Those are lectures. Those are very much uh, lectures that he viewed them as too academic for the pulpit. And he made that clear. And people still, they were published. And they're, used, they're given as if, look, this is how he preached. This is not how he preached. He, was, he was, had a whole different purpose in his preaching. If you go read his sermons, his sermons are all, at the end of the day, Christ-centered, evangelistic, and they call people to responses. All of them. And um, he was... Uh, he was attacked, like Spurgeon in his day was attacked, similarly, for not being evangelistic, for being too uh, academic or being too evangelistic. But just as an encouragement to you as you write your sermons, that this, this idea of having sermons that call people to decision do not have to center around what we call modern ev evangelistic technique. <clears throat> there's still people today coming forward. He's been dead now since the 80s. There's still people coming forward today who were saved under Martin Lloyd-Jones' preaching. We don't have any idea how many people were saved under Martin Lloyd-Jones' preaching. But all of his sermons ended with a call to respond. So, that's why here, you know, though we don't have an invitation... We do call people to response. That's the point of the sermon. Not more knowledge, but response. Obedience. Action. Based on the sermon. All of that said, just to conclude, there are those who are extremely gifted who don't do any of these things. Um, we, have, we, we have no idea, you know, what C.H. Spurgeon, for instance... He didn't follow any of these rules. His sermon outlines usually consisted of a scratch of paper where he wrote down a thought, a word, a reference, something like that. And then he would just preach. Um, Spurgeon said one time when asked about his style of preaching, he said, well, I have at one, mo at one moment five sermons in my mind. The work of sermonizing for me is choosing which sermon to preach. So at every juncture of his sermon, he had five things going on that he could do. And then he would select one and keep moving. And then he would select one and then keep moving. And this is how his brain worked. If you do that, you're going to fail. If you try to preach that way, no, no shot. No, no, all of us in here put our IQs together, probably still not C.H. Spurgeon level. Okay? He was a brilliant man. He's extremely gifted. He's not a good example of this. So there are exceptions. Um, I know many of you here listen to Mark Driscoll. 
very similar in the way he preaches. No written notes. No, I, no, I mean, you know, he, they had this project going where they were showing famous preachers' outlines, and he turned his in. It was like one word. Like, what is that, you know? R.C. Sproul, yeah. Uh, I was at uh, Shepherd's Conference when uh, R.C. Sproul was teaching, and uh, he made a joke uh, at John MacArthur's expense. You can do that when you're R.C. Sproul. And he said, uh, you know, John asked me to come speak again this year. I'm so honored. He went through the whole thing. He played nice cop. Then he said, John called me a few weeks before the conference, and he was just checking up on me. And so I could tell he had something he wanted to find out, and I said, you know, John, you know, we're friends. Well, what is it? He said, well, R.C. said, you know, our people are so blessed by you and your handling of God's Word. He said, just get to it. What is it? He said, could you just write out an outline? <laughs> he said, so, in honor of my friend John MacArthur, I've written out an outline. When I got on the plane, it's a three-and-a-half-hour trip to Los Angeles from Orlando, or whatever he said, or from wherever he was flying. He said, I've wrote my outline. He pulled out this yellow piece of paper. I think Carlton was there. He pulled it out. He showed it to us. It had like, you could tell from where I was sitting, it just had like three or four words written on it. He said, so, John, I have my outline. He put it down. He never referenced it again, never looked at anything, didn't look at any notes, never looked at a Bible, went to preaching. Preached for an hour. You know, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. If you try to do that, you're going to fail. That's not, you can't wear Saul's armor. That's not who God made us to be. So, if my uh, structure is too structured for you, then bend it. Use it how you will. But I would encourage you early on in preaching, teaching, to do all of it by the book. And then, once you've kind of gotten accustomed, then you can adapt and modify and make it your own. Don't start out adapting and modifying. (laughs) Okay? And for please, for all intents and purposes, never think that you're Spurgeon or even uh, any any of these others with this kind of mind. Um, another one, um, his his name slips my mind. Heart cry. What's his name? Oh, Paul Washer. Yeah, Paul Washer spoke at uh, at the Camp Outreach Christmas Conference a few years ago, and. Uh, after the first couple of sessions, some of them went to him and said, you know, could you, some of our students, they love you, this is going great. Could you just show us some, maybe where you're going so we can, give us your outline so we can give it to our students. And he said, I don't have an outline. And they said, you don't have an outline? He said, no, I don't have an outline. He said, well, what, what? he said, well, when, when, when I'm in the service and th- I kind of, I know what text I'm going to talk about. When I'm in the service, you know, I've been studying about the text, praying about the text, living out the text all, all this time. And so, just before I get up there, I just decide what I'm going to say and, and say it. You, you'll fail if that's your preparation, okay? That, that, that doesn't work uh, for the most of us. But God has gifted certain men to break all the rules, and He's called them, and He's given them, and, and, they, and they bless us, but don't, please don't try to imitate them. So, any questions about how to build a sermon? A good practice to use to practice this is to just as you're daily studying, daily reading, your daily reading, just write out uh, essence of the text sentences. 
Just have a piece of paper laying there. Get done reading for the day. Sum up what you read in Genesis or Revelation or wherever you're reading. Sum it up in a sentence. If you get good at doing that, sermon preparation gets easier and easier. Yeah. Yeah, I think at times it is. I think at times, you know, we struggle. I struggle with that. Um, you know, I think that... Um, I think that there's alternate ways. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, I was talking with Bob St. John about this this week, and one of the things that he's doing now, they just started doing recently, is they have a, a room for prayer and counsel. And so after the service, they allow people to come in. They have a room there, and they provide it to the side of the sanctuary. People come in and pray, and also there's an elder there to answer any questions a person has. And so, you know, I, I, wrestle, I wrestle with it. Um, I think that we do need to be calling people to decision and response. I think the, the danger, historically, uh, invitations as we know them um, didn't come into existence until Charles Finney in the early 1900s. Nobody in the history of the church had ever done anything like an anxious bench, which is what he called it, where people came down and sat and, and were counseled on the spot. Nobody had ever done that. I mean, the greatest evangelist, uh, you know, of the 17th century, um, George Whitfield, uh, in the 1700s. He, he never did anything like that. He had thousands of people coming to Christ. I mean, so this was a new invention in Finney, and it spread rapidly, mainly not being, again, not trying to be, um, uh, looked down on anybody, but mainly in sectors of the uneducated, who were driven by emotion. And so they increasingly became more and more emotional based rather than uh, reasonable. Yeah, he was a Presbyterian who uh, left uh, the Presbyterian um, Westminster Confession and, uh, and really went astray. And there's lots of questions about him as a man. But basically, I think the danger we introduce with invitations as we've known them in this area is we introduce a man-made invention into between God and the person. And so it becomes easy to make a decision. It really is much easier to make a decision under that situation because, the, again, <clears throat> and, and so the person comes forward grab the pastor by the hand. They're, God is dealing with them, maybe, maybe not, but it seems that God may be dealing with them, and they're encouraged quickly to pray, to um, whatever, that, that sign a card, to join the church, to make a public profession, whatever, whatever the mode is. And that, that cuts off real repentance at times because people then have something to go back. They think, well, I did all that's necessary. Well, that's not the case. So I think to get in between those, like Bob's trying to do, is, is probably uh, effective and is a good thing. Something we, we might all even think about here. Absolutely. I agree. We, we, you know, something, that's why I was talking to Bob about it. And, you know, I, I, I know it's an issue as far as um, uh, calling for a response. Um, making sure we're, we're doing what we should do, all that we should do to call for a response. Yeah, I think the sermon response is what we're looking for. All of us are trying to figure out how do we best call people to response. Uh, Carlton and Robbie. Uh, he defers. Go ahead, Robbie. 
Well, what I tried to do is, uh, I, I tried to go back to the sermon itself in reference to him. To, I, I quoted him. Uh, here's all the times I called for a response. Here's the exact words I said. You know, the sermon's online. Here's the exact words I said. And uh, I tried to stay out, and, and I talked with him a little about the why we don't do invitations. I tried to explain that to him, but... You know, more than anything, just tried to point out that response and invitation, as we know it, are not the same thing. Response is, response can be as simple as, um, you, um, you need to uh, examine your life for the root of pride, um, and I'm calling you to repent of the sin, sinful pride in your life. I mean, and I'm, I'm just using something vague, but... And that, that's, a, that's a call for response. You're either going to examine your life or you're not going to examine. You're either going to root out pride or you're not going to root out pride. I mean, you know, but it doesn't have to. I think what people have finally kind of worn out on is the we preached on giving today. We didn't say anything about people getting saved. And then we said, now bow your heads and close your eyes. Now I want you to think about, do you know Christ? Well, you were just talking about giving. I didn't know we were talking about whether I know Jesus. You know, it, it, did, it became a one-size-fit-all kind of uh, admit, believe, confess kind of thing. And, and it, it, it got a little, you know, you see what I'm saying? So here's the invitation. I try to go back to, in that case, I went back to my sermon, showed the question, showed the call for response, and, and, and talked a little about the history um, of where, they, where invitations came from and the dangers that I've experienced.